Honest to God, it's true. I can still see the teacher sticking it on the banana, taking it off the banana. It's really conf- I don't have a banana down there. Also, in 6-8, we know what a banana is, so now she's just confusing the metaphors. She just had one prop show, she used it. So it's like, first of all, she laid it flat and put the pad on it. <laughs> she worked that prop. I was from the Northeast, it was quite a poor background. You know, that banana had to go a long way. That was our dinner. <laughs> Hi, I'm Luisa Matinga. And I'm Gail Galley. And this is An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World, the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world but doesn't know where to start. We are on a mission to get everyone on board to achieve the global goals. Now, there are 17 goals that the world promised to deliver by 2030. And although we are nearly halfway to the deadline, we are not halfway to achieving them. Mm, So let's get to work on ending poverty, protecting our forests and providing clean energy for everyone. The big stuff. All the big stuff. So this week, we're going to look at where we are on achieving equal rights for half the population. That's right. We're talking about goal five, gender equality. In this episode, we are going to look at how women are reclaiming the narrative to make sure that women's stories do not go untold. We're joined today by storyteller Janet Mbugwa, who explains why we need to talk about periods. You need to say the word periods loudly, firmly, and often. <laughs> we shouldn't have a group that is completely handling it with a lot of indignity and shame and embarrassment, but that's about 500 million people in the world who are lacking access to menstrual equity. We also are going to speak with the journalist Zara Joya, who continues to shine a light on Afghan women's stories. You know, most of them, they are educated. They are young generations, women, and they are resisting, which is absolutely give us hope that one day we will be free. And gender equality activist Gina Martin tells us why it's important to bring boys into the conversation. There's only so much that women and girls can do when they are the ones existing under a structure of oppression. And so having boys and men in the conversation has to happen because I honestly don't think gender equality can happen without people of all different genders being part of the solution. Hi, Gail. Well, good morning to you, Loiso, my friend, my masculine male friend, on this International Women's Day, as it is that that we are recording on. How are you? I am fantastic because it is International Women's Day. So enjoy the rest of the podcast by yourself. I will step aside as a male on this <laughs> one. That is not how it works. What I want you to do is take the rubbish out, pay all the bills, ideally wash up and sort of clean the dishwasher while you're at it. I think you're mistaking International Women's Day with marriage. <laughs> I think it does get confusing sometimes. I mean, like I, I came across a comedian and she says, People confuse a woman's rights and feminism with doing nothing. It's always a woman and a smaller woman trying to get the baggage up, the heavy baggage up up top, and and then a big burly man will be like, they're, they're all right, I'll, uh, they're, they're fine, they're women, they can do it. And it's like, oh no, we can help as men, as we should. It's like, how we get involved, that's the question. I've got a friend, if he's listening to this, he'll recognize. He said he's down to find out how you please the mother if you go and visit a girl or you're he says you have to time it impeccably, but you pop your head around into you know the kitchen or wherever she is every now and again and just go, anything I can do to help. And ideally, he says you do it when there's definitely nothing to do, but you just pop in, anything I can do to help. And so the outcome is when he leaves, she so go, oh, but that Dan, he's really helpful. So helpful. So I think on this International Women's Day of a recording, you should just punctuate the entire recording with anything I can do to help. It is hard though, isn't it? What does it feel like to be a man on this day of days? Do you feel like you get out of bed and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm in the wrong all day? Is that how it feels? It, it actually does. Do you know how many times I walk into a space and it's like, oh, sorry to be a straight male. Oh, I'm so At sorry. least you're not white. I know, I know. Sorry to be a straight white male. <laughs> oh, it's been 500 years we haven't been able to say that. And finally I can say, oh, to be white, no thanks. <laughs> yes, oh my God. I do think it feels being British right now. Anyway, we digress. I just had a conversation with my 10-year-old where I said, Happy International Women's Day. And she said, why do we even need one of those? We're fine. Because that's how she feels in her head. So I said, well, you know, women all over the world can't go to school, being forced into marriage, like none of it really logging. And I go, I know I'm going to get you. If I was a man, I'd be earning twice as much as I'm earning for the same job. And she was like, what? Exactly. You hit it right in the pocket. It affects all of us everywhere. Those are the kind of conversations we have to get into. And I'm very excited to talk 
to the people that we spoke to today because each of them comes at this from different places in the world, from different perspectives, from different socioeconomic perspectives. So we start hitting the nuances that need to be broken down when we talk about gender. We do, because in the global goal, which is number five, gender equality, there are targets, so it is broken down. But even those targets are so massively broad, you know, girls Uh. finishing school, women dying in childbirth, whether child marriage is legal or not legal. And at the top line, it's not going well. Antonio Guterres just did a speech where he pointed out that if we carry on the way we're carrying on at the moment, we will only hit gender equality in 300 years time. Wow. I think it was getting a little bit better and then various things have set it back. Everything that sets humanity back sets women back. Mm. So refugee crises, women, frontline, you know, climate disasters, mm. women kept out of school, having to walk to get the water. Everything that happens that is bad, women bear the brunt. And so that's what we've seen happening in terms of progress against gender equality. But you flip that and put gender equality in the middle of the global goals wheel and everything gets better, right? You know, rates of education go up, levels of nutrition go up, poverty gets alleviated because women invest back in their community and, and, and. So there's a big top lane message, which is we need to get this goal back on track. And this episode is looking about very specific instances of women who are doing just that. And emphasis on we, because us men need to be included. So in an attempt from me to help with the baggage, putting it up there at the top, today, let us start with the conversations that men are entirely excluded from, which is like the narrative of about how we talk about our bodies and definitely not about periods. We never talk about periods. Be honest, do you know what they are? I do now, 36 years later. I do have a better idea than most men at the very least. Low bar, but I'm not as blind to it as I was before. Were you subject to the adverts where they made period blood blue? Oh my gosh, confusing. So confusing. As a child, why are these women doing cartwheels while leaking blue? We have no idea. (laughs) No one explains this to us. No one explains that to us either. Even more confusing, at school I had sex education the same time as I had period education and it involved putting a sanitary pad on a banana. That's confusing me even more. So let's, let's maybe start by talking to somebody who is all about let's talk about it. All the way from Nairobi, Kenya, we have the, let's talk about it, Queen, Janet Mbukwa. Janet, welcome to An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. It's lovely to have you. Thank you, ladies or girl. It's lovely to be here. I'm tempted to say Dumelang, but I don't know whether you'll be like, don't do it. Do it. Do, do, do it. This is international. It just adds to our international flavor that we have going on this podcast. Now, tell us about you and what do you do? How would I describe myself? I'm Janet Mbogwa. I'm a media personality because my background is being a news anchor, radio presenter, and that somehow transitioned to me being a social justice advocate. I'm an author. I'm a mother of two boys. And I speak a lot on on, on social impact and social justice issues, largely around menstrual equity, gender-based violence, economic empowerment. That's in a nutshell who I am. You know, this is now going to get competitive because when I was growing up, I really wanted to be a news anchor. And I spent quite a lot of time practicing the pivots between the like, here's a terribly sad story. Anyway, here's someone who's knitted for their cat. Oh, my goodness. No pressure. You're already so cut out for it. So I'm feeling the pressure. I'm going to challenge you, Gail. At any point when this thing gets too deep, you have to find a way to pivot into candor. Yes, because we're going to be talking about periods. And as a middle-aged British woman, yeah. honestly, this is awkward for me. As a quarter-aged African male, you can imagine how it's going to be for me. So I need you to pivot as often as you wish. Yeah, no problem. We'll all be good. I promise. I promise it'll be fine. (laughs) We are going to talk about many things, I think, about your work, Jenna. But one of them is the issues of menstruation, menstrual justice, as, as we put it. And I think there is a generational shift. I'd love to know what you think. I'm a mother of two children. I've got a, a boy who's 15 and a girl who's 10. And the 10 year old is fresh as you like. She's not menstruating yet at all. But it's the chat. She's not embarrassed. Do you find this stuff is getting easier to talk about? 100%. Um, and you've said it so well. There is a shift. I just think we're dealing with a younger demographic that's a lot more self aware, a lot more bold and curious, you know, and then we're not censoring them the way maybe 
our parents or communities beforehand used to do it, whether it was intentional or whether that was their version of, I don't know, self-preservation or protecting us, ETC. I mean, my sons are seven and four, and I can tell you they're sort of like 70, going on to 73, <laughs> just in terms of their audacity and boldness and questions and curiosity. But that's a good thing, you know. And so when I hear about your daughter, I'm it makes me happy. Obviously, there's a huge other demographic of underserved girls who don't have that kind of agency. But more and more, you're finding that younger people do have it. So good for her and good for you guys. It also means you're doing something right to make her feel comfortable enough to to say that. So, yeah. You threw out a term that, that threw me over. What is uh, menstrual equity? It's just the ability for every girl and woman to have access to products and information when they're handling their menstruation. We shouldn't have a group that is completely handling it with a lot of indignity and shame and embarrassment, but that's about 500 million people in the world who are lacking access to menstrual equity. Wow. So if there's half a billion women who do not have, as you've called it, menstrual equity, as in they're not free to manage their own periods, it strikes me that that should be solvable. Why do you think it's not happening? It's interesting because I think it's shrouded in so much cultural taboo, patriarchy, sexism. There's so many layers of issues in the way menstruation is approached. I think it really goes back to bodily autonomy and agency and rights of women. Because if it's happening in my body and yet I'm not supposed to talk about it, I think it's to do with a censorship of sorts. And then it becomes a little bit like... Well, that's also not really on the grander scheme of things. It's not really an everyone's problem. It's kind of like a you people's problem. So why don't you just figure it out in silence? We don't need to hear about what's coming out of your down there. Because there's only us doing it and not, I mean, them. If we're talking about, you know, the bloke. Sorry, Louisa, we'll give you a chance to get a word in edgeways in a sec. <laughs> but um, it, therefore, it becomes a proxy for all the other things that you want to sort of shut down. Yeah. Right? This is your point, right? Rights, yeah. you know, freedoms, exactly. advocacy, you know, agency. Lisa, perhaps on behalf of all mankind and the patriarchy, you'd like to answer why you think it's a problem. Well, at the last men's meeting, we were all really quite... Um... No, that's good, Davos. <laughs> Ten nil. Good one. Ooh. Shots fired. Shots fired. The world fails to understand just how little men even know about it. I mean, like modern boys have no idea most of the time. So it's like a whole world that even men are outside of. And it's hard to join the conversation to help advocate. Really good point. A lot of the time it's taught separately, which is hopefully going to change. Yeah, when the girls are kind of going through this transition, boys are told, OK, step out of class. We need to talk to the girls. Because even having conversations around comprehensive sex education in Kenya is still being fought. We've got some of the worst teen pregnancy numbers in the world. Uh -huh. And yet when you try to say, let's have comprehensive sex, they're like, don't you dare, because then you're encouraging them to have sex. And we're like, newsflash, they're having sex anyway, except they're having it with multiple partners without protection. You know what I mean? So it's the same thing. We, there's just a fear of how to approach these conversations. And that's kind of where we need to start is even speaking to the teachers and the parents about how to have the conversation. And how has the stigma around menstruation affected the schooling? It, it has a huge implication. The biggest issues are lack of access to menstrual products and then the stigma that comes with being on your period. So as we speak right now, at least according to the Ministry of Health in Kenya, there's about a million girls who are missing out on school because of their periods, meaning if they don't have access to products, they are likely to miss out on school. And in the end, a lot of the time, they're not able to compete or perform as well. And that's if they haven't fallen pregnant or being violated. So it has multiple implications. With regards to self-esteem, it, it goes back to what we're saying, which is, if you're made to feel like what you're going through is dirty or makes you less of a human, it also eats into your self-esteem. And so suddenly you'll find girls begin to hold back, whether it's in sports, whether it's in anything that has to do with interacting with boys, because suddenly they're conscious that there's this thing happening to me that is dirty or that isn't okay. Because every time the conversation comes up, it's shrouded in a lot of secrecy and shame and stigma. Janet, it seems that you could turn your hand to any not any issue, but even within the goal five set of issues, there could be leadership, you know, as I was saying, there could be economic empowerment and gender pay gap. What is it that switched you into this particular aspect of, of gender equality? I, I love, this is why I love storytelling. And because I was a news anchor, it was 10 years ago. And at the time, my boss, she's, she's still a good friend. She ended up being a minister in the country. 
She was the COO in the newsroom and she said, we're going to need to talk about period poverty. And of course, there was an uproar. And she's like, I hear you all, except I'm in charge. So everybody calm down. <laughs> um, and so it ended up being one of the most groundbreaking stories that we had. It's called Periods of Shame. And it literally shifted the conversation in the country because it showed two girls in an underserved area in Kenya using the most ridiculous products you can ever think of to manage their period. And I'm talking about chicken feathers, oh my goat hide, soil. You can't even fathom. It doesn't make sense when you when you try to sit with it. But And they were showing, this is what we use, this is what happens. And I think for me, n- never before have I been so triggered. Yes, there's an element of privilege. A lot of us were like, what do you mean this is happening? We just pick our products from the shelf and we keep it moving. And there's girls whose lives are also at risk. There's a girl in 2019 in our country who her suicide was linked to stigma and trauma. Her suicide. Her name was Jacqueline. And it was another turning point of the conversation in the country because the teacher shamed her. Another huge issue is sex for pads. Huge issue. I I was triggered and challenged. And so I said, we can do something about this. I just ventured into this whole other world of inequity and injustice. Again, if when you're in the newsroom, you come across these stories every day, but this one stuck with me. I just think about like how much work was done with the HIV virus with just like, you know, at some point we were just giving away condoms. Like the government was just giving away condoms at some point and, and educating every day, every day, every day about this thing and trying to remove the stigma, which is the biggest killer. So you go, man, she, she got to the point of shame and miss it or lack of education and access to the point where she used soil. I'm like, why aren't governments everywhere just giving this for free? Yeah. And it's interesting you said that. That urgency that was used to address um, the issue around HIV AIDS when it was really something that was introduced to everyone. We've talked about that many times in different spaces saying there was such a collective urgency and a collective will to educate and to destigmatize ETC. And we're like, that would be great if the same energy (laughs) could be put into a lot of the issues we're dealing with, like gender-based violence. In terms of the solution being free, there's so many different answers to that. I know that countries like Scotland are piloting free products to, to everyone. Then New Zealand is there. I know Spain the other day introduced menstrual leave. So I think what countries are trying to do is pick a priority area. So Kenya, a few years ago, the former president um, signed an amendment in the Basic Education Act to say every girl in public school will get sanitary pads for free, which was good. And it's It worked for a while, but the problem is if you don't have the right implementation partners, if you're not prioritizing it and leading it as a development agenda, it'll fall through the cracks. And that's what happened. They did it for three months. And we're like, okay, so the periods won't stop after three months, guys. I promise it's an every month thing. (laughs) (laughs) And so it it fell short. The goodwill was there. Good intentions, bad execution. Good intentions, bad execution. So, um, but to go back to what you were saying is free products make a difference. They make a huge difference. It's it's the best intervention because you're keeping her menstruating with dignity and allowing her to navigate during that time. We do it as a, as a foundation. We have a mini cottage making setup in a center where we found it in one of the underserved communities. Um, and we're making 500 pieces a day. And we're, you know, giving those to girls around the community. And there's been 100% of school attendance. So we know what it can do. Imagine any other aspect of life where you go, oh no, the women have to pay, the men, they can do it for nothing. And what we're really saying is, if they want to live with dignity, yeah, they have to pay. Men, they can just go through, no problem. I mean, that is just like screaming inequity on every level, isn't it? Yeah. I'm finding this podcast edition very enjoyable, um, but I feel quite selfish because you're on ours and you've got your own podcast where you're talking about this issue through the medium of story. So tell us a little bit about your podcast and tell us about some of the stories you've come across there. Um, First of all, I'm just very passionate about storytelling. I think you can't argue with a story. A story is somebody's lived truth. And I think it gives you kind of that bigger insight into the issue. And I just thought, what if we just did a story, a collection of stories of first time periods from a very wide array of people, different genders and ethnicities and races, etc. I know we have a woman who was formerly incarcerated as part of the book to talk about menstrual justice behind bars. We have a woman who was visually impaired, who is visually impaired, to talk about the experience of people living with different abilities. Um, Another one who's living with, you know, Down syndrome. And then we had some men. We had an imam, which was great because then this is a, a Muslim man who calls Muslim men to prayer. And he was also part of it. My father was part of it as well, because I keep telling him he's one of the first feminists I ever came across in life. So 
It was a beautiful collection of stories and first times, but also an education on, number one, we're fine. Like, this is a very natural thing. But number two, we do need to look at this from from different lenses because various folks in spaces are affected in different ways. I'm fascinated. I want to hear how your dad's first period went. <laughs> for, for the men, for the men, it was their first, obviously their first interaction yeah. or their first time hearing about it. That's essentially how the men came into it because we really need to include these male voices um, in the discourse as well. What do you say to people in terms of what they can do? Be educated. If you have access, it me, it, it, I can tell you for, for a fact somebody else doesn't. Just educate yourself on how this affects people in, in communities, how it affects society generally. You're one person removed from the girl who has to trade sex for pads. A lot of the time, um, you can lobby, you can donate or um, volunteer at the countless organizations that are trying every day to provide access to products and information. There are so many. Um, and, and have a conversation even at your dinner table or in the pub or with your friends. I noticed that the more you have this conversation, the more some kind of answers and solutions come to you. That's at least my experience. Jada, it's been super nice to meet you. Really great to chat about this. And thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you both. This was so incredible. Um, thank you for everything you're doing as well. Like changing the world one podcast at a time. I see you. Very cool. What a lovely conversation. What a huge sigh of relief from my side because that was, that was actually enjoyable which is not a word almost ever associated with periods unless you're watching the commercials. Of course, then it's periods <laughs> are fantastic. I love her. I just want to be a best friend. She, she must be having a brilliant effect. Yeah, she's almost like the permission to just, just have the conversation because I think it's so shrouded in mystery, both for men and women. Do you know what? I'm just going to start pointing it out from now on. I'm just going to be like, sorry, do you? No, that's actually not how you want. That's not no, how no, you want exactly. to No, exactly. That is the worst. I mean, no. We've grown up with that all our lives. Oh, it's a bit narky today. Must be on a period. <laughs> <laughs> I thought she was so clever as well at how she linked that very niche, small bit of the goal. Because it's not a niche part of life, but this it's it's a very small bit of the whole gender equality picture. But she was so good at linking it to, well, this is how you have a dignified life, right? This is what equity means. You don't have to pay for it. You know, this is what, how, why it's just another weapon of oppression to not support women and girls with the, with the products that they need to lead said dignified life. She was, uh, I thought she was very straight talking and brilliant and the perfect guest to kick off our International Women's Day episode. With that behind us, that wind behind us, let us have more conversations about women's issues. Next up, who are we talking to? Our next guest is from a country where, really, it's the centre of progress going the wrong direction for women and girls. Zara Joya is a journalist from Afghanistan. Now, she runs our own news agency, Rakshana Media, in itself now completely illegal under Taliban rule. And she founded that only to cover Afghan women's stories and experiences because they're being suppressed everywhere else. She had to flee Afghanistan when the Taliban took over again in 2021. And she's now running her newsroom in exile from London, but reporting for news outlets all over the world. So this is the story of bravery. You know, this is a woman who is trying to get the story out there and really risking her own life doing so. Zara Joya, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. You know, this is the Goal 5 episode. I suspect we have heard about people like you more than we've heard from people like you. So I'm really thrilled that you've taken the time to come on and tell us a bit about your life and where your work is coming from. Growing up in Afghanistan, you know, both pre and then during Taliban, just give us a flavor of what life was like as a girl for you growing up. When I was a child, unfortunately, the Taliban were in charge in the first role of the Taliban. And uh, Afghanistan was a dark country in the walls. And the Taliban, they didn't allow women and girls to go to school, to university. They wrongly believed that the boys has more value than, than girls. They uh, weren't allowed to have the right of work, the right of education, and the right of even living freely. So uh, one of my uncles, he is uh, just two years older than me. 
they were allowed to go to school. And one day when he came back from school and asked me, why you are not going to school with me? And my mom said, she's not allowed, she's a girl. And then he suggested that we can solve this problem. We can, you know, you have to change your identity and your clothes uh, and then you can go to school. And I, I, I accepted and I said, yes, I will do that. And then when we asked my mom, my mom said, no, it is uh, difficult for you to do this because it is dangerous. And I said, no, I will do that. And finally, my mom, she made a boy clothes for me. And I, I, I went to school with my uncles. Oh, my school was very far away from my house. Uh, it is almost two hours uh, during the day. So two hours we, we went to school and two hours went to back. And I decided to do this. And I, I sure now, I'm sure that it was a trick for, for the patriarchy society and uh, the Taliban. I mean, it's absolutely wild. And I almost love this bit of the story the most. How did you then go from that stage to going to university to study journalism? What sparked that in your mind? As you know, in uh, the 20 years, the presence of uh, Western country and NATO soldiers in Afghanistan, our society, it's uh, flourished and uh, there was a lot of opportunity for girls. I, I had this opportunity to graduate from school and then I decided to go to university and studied, uh, and I studied law. When I came to Kabul in 2011, one of my friends, she worked as a journalist for a local news agency and she asked me, do you want to go to do journalism? And I said, yeah, let's see. I met their office and then um, I met the boss of this uh, news agency and suddenly I said, wow, journalism is very, very favorite and I have to do that. And they gave me this opportunity and I, after three months, I uh, learned how to do journalism work and how to interview some people and how to find their story, something like that. Uh, and I started my work as a journalist and I studied my, my uh, university too. And so at what point did you switch out of law altogether and form Rakshana Media? You know, since 2011, I worked as a journalist in Afghanistan on media outlets. Most of the time, I was only female journalist in the newsroom. I realized that in this patriarchal country, there is not involved women perspectives or women's view. And I decided to create Rukshana Media. We have three important goals to teach and to uh, share our experience as a female journalist to the young generation of female journalists in Afghanistan. The second is we have to tell the story is still it's untold. The women, they are not able to share their life and experience stories. And in Afghanistan, well, unfortunately, most of the time, the, the women, they don't have enough time to talk together. Uh, we, we believe that if we can talk together and if we discuss each other, finally we can find a solution for our problems in the society. And we decided to choose the name Rukhshana. Shana is uh, a young woman. Unfortunately, the Taliban, they stunned and killed her and 2015 in war provinces because she was stand against the forced marriage and she ran away and said, I will never accept the forced marriage. And we decided to choose our, to name our newsroom Shana. And as I remember, as a reminder that we will not forget those women who lived their lives under the Tiyaki law and this injustice society like Afghanistan, especially the Taliban who have a very fundamental and uh, extremist view against women. So you started after that noble woman and I presume were doing all right and then the Taliban took power again. How did you realize that was happening? I'd love to really get some insight into what life was like for you as that was coming and then it came and then what did it mean for you? When the Taliban took power again in Afghanistan, and it was unbelievable. 
I was in my office and then suddenly my colleagues, they ran away and say, please leave office because the Taliban entered the city. For me, we didn't only lose our country and our, our government. We lost the result of 20 years of force. We, we lost our hope for building a new Afghanistan. One day I went outside and I wrote a report for the Guardian about how so quickly Kabul city wa- was empty from the women present and in, in the city. Everything changed so quickly. It was terrifying, so painful and heartbroken. Uh, during the writing this report, I couldn't miss my, my cry and I, I, my tears. And uh, because it was unbelievable for me to one day, you have to write this painful story. And unfortunately, uh, after you know, almost two years, uh, women removed completely from society. They are staying at home. There is no uh, freedom of uh, movement exists for women in, in, in my country. So it's like women are under a permanent lockdown. I just can't imagine what that must be like just because of your gender, you know, and, and not just restriction, but also the threat of you disobey is so absolute. Like you talked about the Rakshana situation. So at what point did you decide this is too much? I need to get out. You know, I received a call from uh, British embassy in Kabul. Uh, it was 11 a.m. and I didn't know about how to manage and leave behind everything that we built. I asked my parents, what should we do now? And then uh, my my father and my, my mom said, uh, you can go with your sister because the girls, they are more uh, vulnerable than the boy. And then my uh, all my uh, younger brother, uh, he cried and said, no, I will go with you. Wow. And then, yeah, and I told him, your name is not on the list. I can't do that. It is a high risk for you. And he said, no, I will go with you. And then uh, when we arrived at the uh, Kabul airport, it was, it was uh, the British uh, army. There were the uh, British army and I showed uh, them the documents and they allowed us to go to Kabul airport. It was absolutely uh, unbelievable, dark moment for everyone. And how many of your siblings? Uh, three of my sisters. Okay. And my brother. Yeah. And they all got through? Yes. Wow. So yeah, we are living in London now. So you're working from London now. So you carry on Rakshana Media, is that right? And you're still yes. telling stories about Afghanistan women. What kind of things are you finding yourself covering? And is that difficult? It is almost two years that physically I am far away from Afghanistan. But mentally, even during the night and in, in my dream, I, I am in Afghanistan. I can't forget for one moment what is happening in my country because for me, it is my home. You know, I grew up there. I studied there. Afghanistan is a beautiful country uh, for me. When we decided to carry on Rukhshana and run from exile, it was a difficult decision. Rukhshana and our journalists who are uh, working on the ground and they are very brave. They are in hiding, but they will never give up. And they said, we will publish the stories that the Taliban, they are doing in Afghanistan. We received uh, lots of threatening message from from Taliban, from Taliban speakers, but we didn't give up. We decided to go ahead. In Rukhshana Media, we have everyday stories from women and with uh, all of them were very painful and heartbroken. But uh, still we have some uh, positive stories of resistance of women. They are trying to run the secret school. They are trying to teach each other at home. They are trying to find a way. So that, I think it is a difference between the first and the second role of Taliban in Afghanistan. Because at the first time, Afghan women, most of them, they were uneducated, they were illiterate. But now, in this, the second time, you know, most of them, they are educated. 
they are young generations women and they are struggling and they are resisting which is absolutely give us hope that one day we will break this injustice and discrimination on law and we will finally we will find our way and one day we will be free and build that new afghanistan that you are building towards as we close what do you ask normal people to do you know we're not a government we aren't able to throw the regime out what is it you would ask of regular listeners to the show i really want the people ordinary people to speak up to keep alive the conversation about women rights and afghanistan situations and uh, get engaged with the social media put comments and show their solidarity for people especially for women who lost their very very basic and fundamental rights under the Taliban rule thank you zara that is um certainly the message that many activists end this interview with is can people please show support and don't forget about this issue so we won't forget about you and all the women you represent thank you so much for spending time with us thank you what an incredible story I mean, she says that we should keep alive the stories of women's fights in Afghanistan. And when you actually hear the story, it feels like the story is actually being born. You know, it was just like a headline before. It was just to actually hear her story. You go, oh, okay. I think I'm only now starting to actually know what's happening. Yeah. Just please don't forget about us. You know, it was in the news so much when it first happened. And then it goes quiet. And the more the women go silenced, the more quiet it goes. And then indeed you think about the women of Iran, the women of Syria. So that message of keep thinking of us, keep advocating for us is so powerful. It really is. And you almost see the effects of an educated generation. They're not taking any of this lying down, you know, her starting the paper, her continuing the paper beyond the borders of home. And even the woman still back in Afghanistan and they're still like, let's keep this fight alive, even if we can't even, my word, get outside right now. Our final guest is going to argue how we have to bring boys and men into the conversation. And this can be hard, right? Because on the difficult issues that relate to gender, it is often men who are the perpetrators. I hate this, but it is true. It's certainly not all men. But often domestic violence, you know, rape, so much oppression comes from the male side. But if we want to find the solutions, we need to get them involved. So once again, conversation is where cultural change happens. And our next guest knows more than anyone that we need that cultural change if we want political change to follow. Gina Martin is a gender equality activist, a speaker and a writer and is the woman known for her successful campaign to make upskirting illegal in England and Wales. She actually got the law changed. But as you'll hear, her experience with the law has been a sobering one, and she shifted her focus to changing culture and going right to the root of the problem before it's a problem. For years, a lot of my work, they were really measurable objectives. So it was like a law's changed or a policy has changed. Um, that's not to say they weren't big, they were massive. <laughs> but as the time has gone on, I've become more and more interested in the stuff that we struggle to measure. And what I mean by that is the cultural progress, the conversations that are happening, the shifts in attitudes and behaviours and minds. Because I know personally with my first campaign, the law changed because of the cultural conversation we had, because it created an unsustainable environment for policymakers and politicians to not take a side either change the law or don't change the law. And so without that cultural momentum, there would have been no political momentum at all. There would have been no pressure. There would have been no agitation. So the conversation on gender equality now, I feel like, especially in the UK, I mean, that's the only context I really have, is that for a long time, for decades, we have been going, it's really bad for women and girls. And now we're having the conversation, it's really bad for trans and non-binary people. What that means for black women, for black girls, like what, you know, sexual assault for disabled women. And... Ultimately, those conversations are often had in a framing, definitely in mainstream media, as like an awareness. So it's like, let me hold up the problem to you and you can see how bad it is. There's a frustration I've, I know a lot of advocates and activists and writers and scholars who do this work feel, which is that 
We've been saying it for decades now. We don't need more data on how many women are sexually assaulted. We don't need more data on how many women are raped. We don't need more data on how many ch- children are, you know, in forced marriages. Like, we know the numbers. We know the numbers that it's enough of a problem that we have to start taking action to try and culturally or legislatively change it. So the conversation now for me is like, there's only so much that women and girls can do when they are the ones existing under a structure of repression without bringing in people who belong to that community who most commonly perpetrate those prejudices and those oppressions. And so having boys and men in the conversation has to happen because I honestly don't think gender equality can happen without people of all different genders being part of the solution. I think that's really valuable work. So I'm really excited to do that, which I do with Beyond Equality, who are a phenomenal charity. Talk a bit more about the charity you mentioned there, about something working, because I think lots of people listening to this will agree, especially people like me who've got kids of both genders. How do you bridge it a bit? And so tell us something that you've seen maybe that works. I think the approach that they have is what makes it work. So when we go, I go into schools and teachers will say, please, teachers who are overworked and underpaid and they're trying to have these conversations and they're struggling to fit them into the curriculum. And and I go in and they say, talk to the boys about sexual violence. Like they need to know this is a problem. They know it's a problem. They can't stop hearing it in the past five years. But me going in and sitting in front of boys and saying, so women and girls are dealing with sexual violence. They go, yeah, I know. What do you want me to do about it? I don't know what to do about it. And they get instantly defensive because already the dominant narrative is that they are, young boys are just designated perpetrators and they're just going to grow up into men who are going to hurt women. And so what Beyond Equality do really brilliantly is they start the conversation way before that point. They're not going in and talking about sexual violence. They're not going in and telling boys to unpick misogyny. They're recognising that it's actually a slow burn. It's a really long conversation. And they go in and they talk about masculinity. They talk about gender. They ask very simple questions like, when did you first realise you're a boy? And you'll get a lot of young boys who go, I don't think I did. And then you ask the girls that question, they go, when I was 11 and a grown man like tried to put his hand up my skirt or looked at me weird and I knew I was a sexual object from 10. And so there's a real disparity in their experiences because of how they're gendered and because of their gender. So having those kind of conversations then gives them the tools to, by the time it gets to sexual violence, which ends up coming out from them and from the girls, they're already interested. They're playing a role because they're answering questions about their life and their mental health and how they feel as a boy and the pressures that they feel. And why do they feel those pressures? And then the girls go, God, I didn't know the boys felt those pressures. So you have like a real human interaction. And I think beyond equality going in and doing masculinities workshops is a really wonderful entry point to getting young boys to understand how these things are all connected. What an interesting place to start. Like you, and it, But it makes complete sense to me. You can't just dump a ton of problem on someone who might have no recognition of that even within them, where they sit in relation to that because they haven't thought about their own gender. Exactly. That is interesting. Thinking back to, though, that issue of regulation, and then at the end of that is, I mean, I guess the law, Where do you think we're at with women and girls and the law? And there's two points of stimulus that made me ask this question. One is where you started. So tell us Mm -hmm. about the incident that maybe propelled your activism front and centre. And then the other one was, I was listening to a show on the radio this morning about um, how many women at some point in their early lives were exposed to by men. I was. Yeah, same. And and I never did anything about it because what was there to do? And the reason women still don't do anything about it is that they know that the law is either not going to take it seriously or is even set up to do it seriously. So let's get into the law a bit. Absolutely. Yeah, so the upskirting incident was 2017 and I was at a festival with my sister, a family festival in the daytime, British Summertime Festival, and a group of guys basically hit on us and wouldn't stop. And I commented something to them because they were being really overtly sexual and rude. And as a retaliation, one of them obskirted me and sent the pictures to the friend his friends around me which I kind of heard them laughing and eventually saw one of them on his phone with the picture he'd been sent it on whatsapp and I grabbed the phone and you know what you've just touched on there I instantly went into what are all the tick boxes I have to tick and fill now so that people take me seriously like what do I need like how do I be the perfect victim like how do I make sure that this gets because taken on because actually three months previous to being obskirted I had a case dropped by the police I had a stalking case for two years and that was dropped by the police and subsequently, he is now known as one of the UK's most prolific online stalkers. He t- 11 years, 10 arrests and 110 victims. Wow. Which I was one of, yeah. Wow. And none of us were taken seriously for 10 years. So that was dropped and then I was upskirted and I was just like, I have to do everything possible because I know that they won't take this seriously. So I, you know, 
got the phone out of his hand and I was like looking in the eyes of all the people around me and being like, help me. I screamed exactly what he'd done in front of everyone. I ran away with the phone and he chased me and then I handed him and the phone and the picture into police and had witnesses and they were like, there's not much we can do. Um, And I was like, just cried my eyes out. I was like... Of just just through pure exasperation. Was that a policeman, not a festival steward? No, it was a festival steward. Was amazing. Joseph, shout out my friend on Facebook, the security guard from that day. Still, big up Joseph. Big up Joseph. He was, took it seriously instantly. Protected me physically from the guy. Took the phone. Called the police. Escorted me to the police. Messaged me on Facebook to make sure I was okay afterwards. It was lovely. Um, but the officers, of which there was a female and male officer, they walked towards me, and I thought, oh my god, thank god, there's a female police officer. She'll get it. Just just said. There's not much we can do. And actually the male officer said, I've had to look at the picture. It shows more than you'd want it to show. But unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. If you'd chosen not to wear knickers, it would be a graphic image, but you did, so we can't do much. Stop. And I was like, Stop. hang on a second, because I've spent my entire life hearing people say women need to wear more clothes to avoid being sexually assaulted and being victim blamed that way. So how is it that if I wore less? Like I just, I fully, my brain just like went to a puddle, like jam, and I just started crying because I was like, what is going on? Yes. And then I went I went home that night. I kind of performed being okay for the rest yeah, of the night. Yeah. You know, brush it off. I'm fine. I'm super strong. Yeah. Then I went home and looked. I remember just lying in bed and being like, what if I was a kid? Like, that can't be right. Like, how does that work? And I got a law student friend of mine to look into the law for me. I did a bunch of Googling. I thought I'd found that it wasn't a specific sexual offence, but I didn't know. And she confirmed that it was. And then decided to take all my advertising skills transfer them into like campaigning skills and start to ask the question why it wasn't and then that eventually snowballed into getting a lawyer and trying to change law um but my experience of that which was two years every single day I was working full-time making like 24 grand a year I was up at 5 a.m before work and at the law firm until 1 a.m every night like I was just constantly working on it they began to be like a narrow because I was doing a lot of media you know it was like a big story in the UK and it was constantly cropping up and it was huge I remember it I remember it yeah and so it was it was lots of narratives about the campaign and about my work around me and lots of those were like almost as if I would be like really all about the law like I just think the law is that it's like no because I'm doing their job I shouldn't have had to do this like I the police failed me Facebook even failed me. I put a picture of the guy up on Facebook and Facebook contacted me and said, take it down, that's harassment. Because I put a picture of the guy up. Yeah, I know. So I was like punching walls at this point. Yeah, and then CPS failed me and then like went to Parliament and basically like a bunch of politicians were like, no, no, that's not how it works, babe. We don't need another law. So it was constantly being patronised and realising that, hang on, if someone who has no legal or political experience, which is me, has to go and change the law... How is that a just legal system? I came out the way I went in, which was like, what are you guys doing in there? They don't take it seriously at all. It's not front of mind for them. It's not, it doesn't get them votes. And you can see that by the fact that rape prosecutions are effectively now decriminalised. We're at like 1.5% Wow. go to conviction. And Laura Bates in her brilliant book, um, Fix the System and Not the Women, describes how that is effectively decriminalisation of rape. The law is not a guide for morality. It never has been. And it, and it doesn't reflect what is happening, the complex situations and the complex experiences and the complex traumas women and girls and trans non-binary people especially, they're not even recognised in Parliament, are subjected to. So I'm inspired and in awe of the people who organise despite the fact that our legal system is completely failing everyone on on the fronts of gender equality and specifically sexual violence and misogyny. Like I didn't do anything in politics after that campaign because I was like, I, I want to spend time with the people every day who are making a material difference to people's lives, who are changing minds, who are who live and breathe this work, not those who will live and breathe it for a week if it's going to get them good PR or votes. And that's what politics is. Well, thank you for sharing that whole story because it's obviously a lot of stored trauma in there. And I'm sad that for you that it didn't resolve in a kind of Yes, because you might read that story and you got the oh, law totally. changed. Oh, totally, you'd so be like, killer. You'd be she like, did it. Yeah, yeah, go Gina, she, and, and off, off she sails for a happy life. But I can totally understand why you don't feel that way about it. Last question for me, because often we try and end any interview with a word or two of what someone listening to this who might have been a bit more educated, a bit more moved to do something... What would you recommend people do if they want to move this agenda positively forward? Figure out where you hold power in your life. Could be a teacher, could be a a slightly higher up in a company, could be a big brother, could be, you know, a parent, whatever. 
and start asking yourself the questions that are basics about your gender, about your experience. Start to do some self-work through books, through reading, through TED Talks, everything, all this stuff's free. YouTube University, like go to events because ultimately the cultural change doesn't happen if we just, you know, shout information at people. It starts to happen when people start to ask these questions that are happening now to themselves and start to figure out if I hold power here, how can I facilitate that conversation with a coworker or a kid in my life? and get curious about what gender equality actually looks like for you because it's different for everyone. That's great. Thank you. Find the power that's close, educate yourself and then share the learning to start the conversation, right? Gina Martin, it has been a real pleasure to meet you. Best of luck out there and stay in touch with us. Love to help whenever we can. All the very best. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that was very eye-opening. When she said the first time a woman realizes that she's a woman is when she's a young girl and into some sexual offense, I go, oh my gosh, it was only as a full grown male when I had somebody, when I was walking, I was walking to work, they were fixing their paper outside their house and they looked at me walking by in his gown and he groped himself and licked his lips at me. If I look back at what that felt like in that moment and I go, as horrible as that was, that's every day for women, that's an insane thing. So, you know, we never get that perspective, most boys. And so to go, oh, I need to be aware. I mean, listening to her made me sad because I remember I remember being exposed at, in a library. I remember a bloke seemed to have an unfeasibly large book in front of him. And then I realized why I was carrying the unfeasibly <laughs> large book is because when you put it down is to my little, te- you know, virgin eyes, an unfeasibly oh, large no. item was behind it. Um, and, but I, I didn't know who to talk to about that. Like, and, and so it made me sad remembering that, that I just didn't even tell my parents. It was just a kind of like hideous thing that I carried for a few years until I sort of blanked it. But it also made me happy because it made me think, wow, she has all the tools. Uh, there exists the networks now and more and more there exists the conversations that we can, um, exercise this, this stuff. Exactly. Between us, gender. And together, because if the law is failing us, we can't fail each other. Speaking of learning, I think let's recap on everything we have learned it's, today. It's oh, time. I think it's time. It is time for an idiot's guide to saving the world in 30 seconds. Three, two, one, go. Uh, we have to talk about it. All of it. Let's talk all about it. All of it. And it's way better to have a Google search on what is a period in your history than to not have it in your history. So educate yourself. No shame. Boys and men are as important to achieving equality for women and girls. So let's bring them in. And let's bring them in early. Yes, and if you see something, say something. We all need each other in the fight for equality. If you have enough when it comes to menstrual products, the chances are that really not far away from you, there'll be a girl that doesn't have enough. Mm. So find out where you are, how to share, how to support. And also, we must not forget about the woman in Afghanistan. We must not. So we can do that by checking out the stories on Rokshana Media. And also, we should look at First Time Stories, Janet's book and podcast. And, oh, is that time? Oh, that is the time. But that was a highly educational episode that I appreciate. As it should be recorded on International Women's Day, Global Gold Number Five, Gender Equality. So that is our time up for today's episode. But if you want to find out more, and why would you not? Go to globalgoals.org, click on goal number five. And I think more than any other goal, there's more tips there on how to get involved. Yeah. Well, that's me from a better educated Loisa Matting. <laughs> and that's me from a female Gail Galley. Cheers. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is an Audi production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolen Goffin, Ali Winter-Taylor and Ivor Manley. The executive producer is Ellie DiMartino. If you've liked what you've heard, please subscribe, share on your socials and leave us a review. It really helps other people find us and my mum gets really happy. And the more that people find us, the more people are saving the world. <laughs>